Good morning, Four Oaks. If we don't know each other, I'm Pastor Paul. So glad that you were here, either in person, joining online. Um, let me just say, men, if this isn't on your radar yet, um, it is Valentine's Day. And if, if this is the first time you're hearing this, um, I've got some good news and some bad news for you. Okay, so bad news, and I'm not sure how to say this diplomatically, you're done. Okay, so don't even, don't even bother going home today. But good news, I did hear Circle K is having a run on six-day-old flower bouquets. All right, so grab one of those on the way out. But anyway, hopefully that's not, that's not you. But we're going to redeem the time this morning by diving into 1 Timothy. So you can open your Bibles there, 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're in the middle of our journey through this book. It's a series we're calling Order in the House. Now, what are we calling it that? This seems like an inappropriate season to really ask, what does it mean to be the church? What does it mean to be the local church, the family of God, in a time and a season where, let's be honest, the church seems more fragmented um, in certain ways than, than ever before, both because of, of the season we're in, because of the cultural factors at work, the health factors at work, and this just seems like um, this is the book that God has for us as the people of God right now. Now, I know, I understand that, that 2020 is kind of functions as that, the year that must not be named, right? But there was something interesting I was noticing as I was reflecting back on 2020, and that was the content of the New York Times bestseller list for the whole year. It was interesting, and I don't know if this is the case every year, but it seemed there was just a particularly large number of, of what we would call autobiographical or personal memoirs that were represented on that list released in 2020. So famous names like Matthew McConaughey and Barack Obama, Mariah Carey, Kobe Bryant, Mary Trump. And, and what I'm about to say is not directed to any of these in particular, but obviously we have to know in our image conscious age that, that oftentimes what we are reading in terms of people's personal stories are these highly curated, highly selective sort of glimpse into people's lives, right? Where, 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 where there's this sort of revisionist history going on that shines the best light possible on what's happening in a person's life and what's happened to them um, that has transpired up to that point. And even those times when, when we might see some imperfections or people might reveal a little bit of themselves to us, a lot of times it's just sort of that faux humility, right? Like, I'm broken, you're broken, we're all broken too. So that sort of thing. And that's part of just the cultural vibe that, that, that we're a part of. But we need to understand as we get into the text this morning, this is not the Apostle Paul's approach. See, Paul is going to take an autobiographical excursion this morning. But instead of showing us his best, and you have to admit, there would be a lot of greatest hits in the Apostle Paul's, you know, accolades and honors, right? A lot of trophies in that case. But Paul takes this opportunity in, in showing some of us his story, his back, his back story to his life. He goes so far as to not share the best, but to actually share the worst. And he, and he does this to show us that he of all people was a perfect candidate for the grace of God. Now for us this morning, this is not going to be a mere academic historical excursion because we have to ask ourselves, are we too a candidate 
for the grace of God? And if so, why? And if it happens for us, how? So that's where we're heading this morning. First Timothy chapter one, we're going to read verses 12 through 17. I'm going to invite you if you can, if you're able, willing just to stand as we hear the word of God just proclaimed over us. And Paul says this in verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would take us down the same spiritual road that you took the Apostle Paul down. Father, I pray that you would show us a glimpse of our hearts so as to impress upon us the glorious nature of your grace. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do that for us this morning, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. You may find your seat. There's going to be three questions we want to answer that emerge out of this text this morning, and and here they are. Number one, who is a candidate to receive God's grace? The answer may not be what you expect. Who is a candidate to receive God's grace? Number two, how do you receive God's grace? And finally, maybe a question you've never really contemplated, why? Why do we receive God's grace? So here we go. Who was a candidate? Now, in the passage last week, Paul was telling us about these false teachers in the church in Ephesus who were misusing doctrine. They were misusing theology. They were misusing the law of God. And they were creating division and acrimony, confusion and deception. And Paul wants to emphasize to us, he he said this last week, this is not a problem or defect in the word of God. This is not a problem in doctrine. It's not a problem in theology. There's nothing defective about those things. What's defective is people, right? People misusing doctrine, law, and the word of God. And to sort of illustrate this point, that one of the purposes of the law is to restrain evildoers, Paul lists out in verses 9 and 10, you can flip back in your Bibles just, you know, a paragraph or so, And be reminded of this list of greatest hits of all sins. And there are some doozies in here, right? Paul says that the law is for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers. 
Now, what's interesting about this list? And we look at it, and there is some serious vices and sins there. We, we see Paul drop this, this term in there, murderer. And we have to say, hmm, why did, why did Paul mention that particular one? That, that particularly grievous sort of sin. And I think as Paul is talking about the law, and he's talking about the proper use of the law, one of those purposes is to restrain the evil doer, that this sparks for him a personal thought, an, an autobiographical thought. And, and, and he follows this up and look in verse 13 by saying, and I think he's specifically referring back to this idea of being a murderer. He says in verse 13, he makes a startling claim, the apostle does. He says, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. Parents, have you ever told your child that you're an insolent opponent? Just wait till you find out what it is. See, those terms, and I think they all mean, they mean something particularly here related to Paul. Blasphemer, and we, we looked at this last week, is one who like has offense against God, who's disobedient to God, who's dishonoring to God. In other words, that's the table one of the Ten Commandments. But the persecutor is what Paul was doing or to other people. He was not just dishonoring God, he was dishonoring the church and his people, and he was disobeying table two of the Ten Commandments. But all of this sort of culminates in Paul calling himself an insolent opponent, and literally it means a violent bully. Someone who throws their weight around to get their way. This might be physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, verbally, all, all sorts of abuse. Someone who imposes themselves in a, in, a, in a violent sort of way. And, and culturally, right, we're, this is the land we live in. I mean, not just figuratively. On both ends of the political spectrum there there are many that we would call insolent opponents those who are who who throw their weight around to get their way and all of this culminates look in verse 14 where Paul says in fact it was so bad for me that I was the foremost of sinners and that literally means the chief right the, 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 the first to be picked. So imagine you're on the playground picking teams, right? And, and you have one group of sinners over here and another group of sinners over here. This is playground, right? You understand how this works. And Paul says, I wasn't just one of those people. I was one of the captains. I picked the teams. I ran the teams. I was the foremost of all of them. And please understand something, church. It's very easy to just sort of spiritualize this, but, but don't do that. This is not mere hyperbole on Paul's part. And if you are familiar with Paul's story and Paul's testimony, you know this. In Acts 8, listen to, to Luke's testimony about who and what Paul was doing. And it says, and Saul, which was his name when he was a Pharisee, and Saul approved, that means he sanctioned, his execution, meaning Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. 
And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now listen to this. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, as you're just kind of letting that settle on you for a second, I mean, this sounds like 1939, Poland, Warsaw, the ghetto, people being rounded up, thrown into concentration camps, hauled off to fates that are unspeakable. And we may say, well, 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 wait a minute, that's Luke saying that. What what does Paul himself say? Well, Paul's before Agrippa. Listen to how Paul puts it in even more stark terms, Acts 29. Now, this is Paul telling his story. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but they were put to death. But when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I signed, literally, I signed the legal authorization papers. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in a raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. You ever had one of those times like in an argument where just like your blood boils or you read something online and like, your temperature rises, and you are angry, you are agitated, not a good time to be behind the keyboard, right? And, and, and you have, sometimes you have to like take a step back, I'm going to walk around the block a hundred times, I'm going to breathe deep, I'm going to, I'm going to get some exercise. And what happens in, invariably? Your, your blood begins to, to settle down, right? You're thankful that you did not write or call or speak in the way that you thought about writing or calling a speaking in an an hour prior, right? This is a physiological reality. What Paul says, though, is that his blood was always boiling. There never was a time where he was not animated. I mean, in the more he ate, breathed, and slept the killing of Christians. It so animated him. It said that he would he would, it would propel him to take days upon days journey to other cities just to persecute Christians. This was how much he was caught up and zealous for what he thought were the things of God. He was a murderer. He was an insolent, violent man. You may have heard me mention this guy before, but Adolf Eichmann, who was he? He, he was actually the architect of the, of the, the Nazi Holocaust. He was the one who made the trains run on time, literally. He was the organizer, the master planner. He was given a mission by Hitler, and he went out and made it happen. Well, he escaped after World War II and lived for a couple of decades in Argentina until finally the Israeli intelligence, the Mossad, tracked him down, brought him back to Israel where he was tried and then executed. Don't ever cross them aside, by the way. Just, just, just saying. Paul, this is no exaggeration, church, was the Eichmann of the early church. And what's profoundly startling about this testimony is that Paul was not running from it. See, see in our culture, if, I mean, 
I mean, like, we, we, we wouldn't even dare whisper this under our breath, right? But what's astounding is, not, is Paul's not just running from it. He's actually running to it. He, he, meets, he meets the runner head on in the hole. He's, he stands right up to it. In fact, he says, it's even worse than you think, guys. I am the worst sinner that I know. And there's two things I think we can learn about Paul's example that are super relevant for us in this way. First of all, Paul is giving us a model about how to think about and respond to our own sin. See, it's very easy to read that list that we read just a few minutes ago from verse 9 and say, oh, thank goodness, Pastor Paul, that's not me. Like, I mean, I kind of lie and cheat and steal and stuff, but not like that, right? I mean, like, that's the really the worst of the worst. And I think what Paul would have us do here is not to compare Paul to Nero and be like, well, technically, that's not true. The Apostle Paul did not kill nearly as many people as Nero, who killed Christians and put them on stakes and burned them alive in his garden. That, you know, or like, I, I know I'm pretty bad, Pastor Paul, but I mean, come on, Stalin, Hitler, that's not the point, right? You're missing the whole point. You have to know that no one knew Paul other than God better than Paul. Paul knew his heart better than anyone else knew his heart. He was so in tune with his depravity and wretchedness, he could honestly say with a clear, with a clear conscience, I am the worst sinner that I know. Christian, you need to know, no one knows your heart outside of God like you know your own heart. And Paul is telling us that in order to be a candidate for the grace of God, we have to come to a place where we can say before God, I am the worst of sinners that I know. Because it's only when we come to that place, that to the bottom of our soul, where we know that that. For all the things people know about us, we know, don't we guys, it's so much worse than people realize. And God knows us even on a more profound level than that. And, and, when, we're, and when we say that, when we can come to that place, we're, say, we're saying something profound spiritually. We're, we're, we're saying, just like Paul, I understand there is not one thing in me that merits the favor of God and the mercy and grace of God. I know that I think this is powerful psychologically. Where, where, where we know deep down, don't we, our own wretchedness. And we just are so intent in living in denial of it, we'll do anything to suppress it, right? We will eat, we will travel, we will exercise, we will binge watch we will we will do any host of a number of things just from having to admit the truth about ourselves but paul says you want to be a candidate for the grace of god know yourself and when you know yourself and you're brutally honest you can say i am the worst sinner that i know some of you right now 
are in long-standing conflictual situations. Maybe it's a marriage. Maybe it's an estranged child. Maybe it's a broken Christian brother or sister from some time in your past. And there is something incredibly profound about coming to the place, for example, in a marriage and saying, the biggest problem in this marriage is me, to your own soul and meaning it. And when you come to that place, there is a healing power of mercy and grace and humility and kindness and patience that will flow out of you. Listen, this is not going to fix all your problems. But it is a conduit to the mercy and grace that God wants to work in your own soul and those you whom are you in relationship with. And so one thing that we can emulate for Paul is how we are to think about ourselves and our own sin. But second, on the other end of the spectrum, second thing we can learn, and I think this is one of Paul's primary points, this is just amazing, Paul is saying, if church of Ephesus, if I am a candidate to receive the grace of God, how much more so are you? In other words, if, if you think you're out, okay, so, because there are some of us, by the way, who, who, apart from not being conscious enough about our own hearts, are super in tune to our own hearts and are saying things like, Pastor Paul, you don't get it. I know I'm the wretched, most wretched of sinners. I totally get that. I feel like I've just squandered so much of my life. Is there the grace of God? Is there any of that left for me? And I think Paul's point in highlighting his own testimony is to say, absolutely. That no one has sinned themselves outside the grace of God. As if Paul's saying, you don't think so? Just look at me. Look at me. Look at what I've done. Look at who I are. Look, look, look at who I am. And I know in a room this size and people watching online, there are people in this room, in this audience, who need to hear that. To need to hear, Pastor Paul, am I a candidate for the grace of God? And the answer is, if you know you're a candidate for the grace of God, you're a candidate for the grace of God. And here's how that happens. Let's go to point number two. How do you receive this grace? Verse 15, let me read it. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Now that little phrase, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That is, that's in a formula. It's in a creedal formula. And that actually occurs five times throughout the pastoral epistles. Now let me explain how this functioned in the life of the church. By this point in time, the New Testament church is about 25 years old. And there's many local churches. They were planted in Judea and Samaria, Asia Minor, Macedonia, Greece. And over time, these churches who were planted by apostles were tended to by these apostles who would come and would visit and would give instruction. They would teach them the, the doctrines once for all delivered to the saints, the truths passed on to them of, of the gospel from Jesus. And these teachings 
both verbal and oral, as well as written in letters by these apostles, became the New Testament over time for the church. But up to this point, they, they, the church would have these little sayings, little creedal formulations. Oftentimes they would be hymns that they would recite when they come together to remind themselves what it is that they really believe. And this is one of those statements. And when we think about this statement that every time the church came together, they would say, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. It tells us that from the earliest days of the church, the apostles, everyone involved knew that the church stood or fell on the doctrine of the gospel. That this was the article upon which everything was supported or upon which it came tumbling down. That That in other words, Jesus, when he came to earth, did many wonderful things. He healed people. He raised the dead. He gathered a crowd. He discipled men. But if you want to know the principal thing that Jesus came to do, he came to save sinners. And he came to save sinners by laying his life down. And you see this all throughout the Gospels, right? Jesus set his face as flint towards Jerusalem. Jesus said, I have to be about my father's business. Jesus predicted in Matthew 16, I have to go up to Jerusalem and suffer many things the Son of Man does. Peter rebuked him. He rebukes Peter in turn. Jesus understood that his mission was completely and utterly oriented to this idea that he had to come and lay his life down for his people, for the lost, to save sinners. And Paul says it is by virtue of that, look at verse 14, that it was through his death, Paul says, 13 and 14, that I was shown mercy. Now, the the word, it might be something Paul even kind of invented. It literally says, I was mercied, okay? Or not not I was blessed, but I I was mercied. Then he goes on to say, grace overflowed. If you ever have your child ever have a glass they fill up with milk or water or soda if you let your kids drink the stuff that they fill up and they fill it how, how far do they fill it up always oh to the tippy top right like so much so that if it's not spilling out you know to even breathe on that cup is going to cause it to spill over and so you end up doing what we do we, we slurp it out of the glass on the table without moving it right because it's overflowing, it's, it's, it's so in abundance that the container can't help it. Paul says, this is the nature of God's grace. This was the nature of God's grace to me. God mercied me, and then he caused his grace to overflow. So in that analogy, Paul was the vessel. And there was so much grace for him at that point, it literally overflowed there was, there was plenty for other sinners besides Paul. It wasn't just enough. It didn't come up short, but it actually was so abundant that it's this ever-giving stream of life to Paul. Paul says, that's what Jesus has done for me. Me, the, 
the vilest of sinners, the murderer of all murderers. And Paul, Paul expresses this. Look at verse 14. He says, and believe it or not, he appointed me to service. Now, or in verse 12, the way he puts this, he says, he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Now, let me explain what this means and doesn't mean. That word, judge me faithful, it literally means to count me trustworthy. Jesus counted me trustworthy. What Paul is not saying, because it would undercut the point of this whole passage and what Paul is saying, he's not saying that because Paul was trustworthy before he knew Christ, that this earned him the right to be trustworthy with the gospel. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is rather using this figure of speech to simply say how amazed he is that God could appoint him to this task as the chief of the apostles considering who he was. In other words, it's almost as if Paul is saying, can can you believe this? Can can you believe this? Uh, God has entrusted me to do this? Who, Who am I? We might have the same sort of reaction when we find out we, we received a, a job promotion or someone gave us a gift or someone entrusted some piece of responsibility to us. And, and we know that in and of ourselves, like, I've done nothing to earn this. This is just an absolute gift that you would allow me the privilege of doing this. That's what Paul is saying. That's what Paul is saying. A second thing that we want to note and go back to the text here, when Paul says in verse 13, when he says, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now, what does that mean? See, Paul thought he was working on God's behalf. He was utterly convinced. He was zealous He thought he was serving God. But what Paul is reminding us is that as zealous as he was, Paul was also ignorant in his unbelief, which just shows us something. Just here's a a little side note, okay? Just because we are well-intentioned, just because we are sincere about something, does not mean that we have truth. See, guys, we live in a culture which says the test of truth is simply sincerity. In other words, if you really believe it, if you really believe in something, regardless of whether it's backed up by truth or not, that's truth for you. We do this all the time, you know, when we, when we think about intentions or how we felt about particular decisions. Guys, I've sat with many a people over the years who were who have shipwrecked their faith and their lives because of simply this. They they felt they thought, they had an impression, they were convinced, they were zealous for all things that the Word of God clearly speaks to. And it means that for us, just like for Paul, see, Jesus had to appear on the road to Damascus with Paul and say, Paul, here, here is the truth. I am the truth. You are persecuting me. It doesn't matter how zealous you were, how well-intentioned you were. You are deceived about what you are doing. And it's a real call for us to 
to understand, to know, to embrace this book. That there, is, that there is no binding truth apart from this. That it is the ultimate arbiter of truth. It is the way, the truth, and the life as it testifies to Jesus Christ. But see, here, Paul here is reminding us that he did not initiate reconciliation with God. You see, he was heading down the road to Damascus fully convinced in his own mind that he was doing the right thing. And what did Jesus do? He struck Paul down. He blinded him. And he said, Paul, I'm going to redirect all that zeal, all that training, all that headstrongness into service for me. And if you want to know what we call that as Christians, we call that regeneration. We call that conversion. We call that sovereign grace where we are heading in one direction and we are ignorant in our unbelief, no matter how well-intentioned. And Jesus comes and he appears to us and he draws us to himself and he opens the eyes of our heart and he changes our heart because Paul was irrevocably changed. Remember what Jesus told the disciples, you did not choose me, but what? I chose you. And Paul is saying, can you believe this? I, I thought I was doing the right thing. I was ignorant. I, I, and, and here I am. God opened my eyes. God chose me. God appeared to himself. This is supernatural, sovereign grace in motion. And so when Paul says that I received mercy because I acted in unbelief, here's what Kent Hughes says about that. Paul was not saying that his acting in ignorance and unbelief had earned him mercy. Not what he's saying. Rather, he meant that it did not disqualify him from receiving mercy. His having sinned while in ignorance indicates that he had not knowingly defied God with what the Old Testament calls sins of a high hand or purposeful defiance. In other words, Paul is saying that once God brought it to my attention that I wasn't serving God, that I was persecuting, that I was blaspheming, he says, I agreed with God and repented. He was shown mercy through his repentance. Because the only thing that can, please hear this, that can disqualify you from receiving mercy is your refusal to receive mercy. Is your your firmly held conviction that I don't need any of that. Pastor Paul, I don't need any of this religion. I don't need, I mean, you know, religion is just for Poor people, stupid people, people in different parts of the country. I don't need that stuff. I'm doing just fine on my own right now. I can, I, can, I can call my own shots. I can make my own way. In other words, the only thing that can disqualify you from receiving mercy is to say, I don't need it. Is that I'm doing just fine on my own. Now, let me just say this as an application point to you who are Christians and who profess Jesus Christ. Let me just say this. Where in your life right now is God calling you to agree with him? Where, let's be honest, you've just kept him at arm's length for a long time. In other words, God, you can have this, 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 and this in my life. That's yours. But this thing right here is not yours. I don't need your mercy in that area. 
I, I dare say that for, for many of us, that some of those areas that are so hardened and calcitrant that we struggle with, besetting sins, besetting problems, whether it's personal, marital, or otherwise, are just rooted in the fact that if we're really quite honest, we just don't think we need God's mercy there. And instead of being our repentance being a conduit of grace, we are short-circuiting the mercy of God in a particular area of our life when God is simply saying, with Paul, just agree with me. Just agree with me that you need me. That it's only through my supernatural divine power and work. So where, where folks, do you need to bow the knee? Where do you need to let go of your wrestling? Where do you need to entrust yourself to his grace. We can learn this from Paul. Last point and we're done. Why? Why did God pour his grace out upon us? And Paul gives an astounding answer. Okay, he gives an astounding answer. He says, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. What does Paul see in his own story? What, 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 gets, what captures Paul's attention? Paul says, one of the reasons Jesus saved me is that I would be an object lesson wherever I went. I would be an object lesson to God's perfect patience. That I would be a walking testimony to God's grace. In other words, when people looked at me, they would say, if God could save him, he can save anybody. See, even the other apostles had a hard time believing this, remember? Remember when, when, when Barnabas was wanting to bring Paul around and they were like, no thank you very much, right? We, this was the guy killing and we're not inviting Eichmann over to dinner tonight, thank you. But see, they knew intellectually what God's grace could do, but it was almost too unbelievable to admit that the worst of sinners had in fact been saved. And there's two things that Paul did habitually to sort of show that his life was a living, breathing parable and story of the gospel. Two things Paul just habitually did, and one is what he's doing in this, both he's doing in this passage. First of all, he took every opportunity to tell his story. Even the hardest, most painful parts. In fact, I would say, precisely the hardest and most painful parts. I mean, besides here, there's Acts 26 and there's Philippians and, and, and many other examples where when it came time to tell his story, Paul did not mince words. He, he simply said, I was the absolute worst of the worst. And he did this in a way where he was never the hero, but Jesus always was. And so, they're, 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 Christian, there is a powerful thing in us telling our story. They're, 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 there's an incredibly powerful, redemptive thing where, 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 we, where we can say, not only was I bad, I was so much worse than you dare realize. But where sin abounded, what does Paul say? Grace abounded all the more. 
And so God says, Paul says, God saved me so that I could be a demonstration of his mercy and grace. And so he was always telling his story. Second thing that Paul was always doing. And you can see this in his epistles. You see it right here. He just is continually breaking out into praise and thanksgiving of God. He is, he, praise of God is never far from this man's lips. And you can see this in verse 17. He just, he breaks out into song. He breaks out into this glorious declaration. Verse 17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In other words, Paul's saying, Jesus is my king. And he's immortal, it means he's never changing. He's never decaying. He's never going to let me down. He's invisible, meaning he's everywhere, all the time, entirely accessible to those who call out to him. And he's the only God. There are no rivals. There, there, there is... There, there are even no rivals to threaten your salvation, Christian. The only condition of knowing and receiving the mercy and the grace of God is knowing that you need it. And God entrusted this message to Paul. And by the same token, this message has been entrusted to us. Are you a candidate for God's grace? It's maybe the most important question you can ever ask yourself. You are if you know you are. Let's pray.